says, get that India, big boy. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as 4020. Joining me, co-host again, as always, my good mate, 60s. Always a pleasure, mate. How are you doing this week? Mate, I'm doing really well. I hope all of our listeners are too, and that you are, John. And, you know, with TCT and all the stuff that's going on with the Eels, it's been a busy week. It's going to be a busy weekend coming up. Um, we've got, in fact, it's so busy that we dedicated this uh, podcast to just you and I trying to cover. Yeah, we're on our, on our Pat Malone this week. There is so much to talk about. There is no time for a guest, but don't worry, we'll make up for it next week with a, a whole bevy of what we're expecting uh, guests to join the tip sheet. So look forward to that. But let's uh, get right into it, 60s, because like I said, there is a lot to cover this week. Let's start with some NRL and para-affiliated news. Eels kicked off uh, that sort of run into the trial against the Dragons with an announcement of four players re-upping with the club. Uh, one that had been linked to previously, Wiramu Greg in the All-Stars lead-up, had indicated to the media that he was close to re-signing the club, and indeed he has re-signed to the end of 2023. So that's a one-year extension for the big man. But then we had a trio of players re-upping to the end of 2024, uh, cult figure and breakout star of 2021, Makahesi Makatoa, at the forefront there, but also Kai Rodwell, and a train and trial uh, signee who really impressed through the preseason 60s in Ofahiki Ogden. Uh, three forwards there re-upping until the end of 2024 and shoring up that depth in the forward pack for the blue and gold. Yeah, I welcome those signings, mate. And as you alluded to there, you're talking about some players who impressed during the preseason. Ogden, I wrote before that the question is how BA leaves him out of consideration for the top 17. And that's how much he was impressing during the preseason opposed sessions. So it was no surprise that he was uh, secured into a, uh, into a longer-term deal. Now, we'll get into his performance in the trial when we have a bit of a chat about that. I thought it was a bit of a mixed bag myself, um, but I'll, I'll talk about that then. But, um, yeah, Rodwell, had, he'd really uh, also excelled during the preseason. And, look, uh, Macca, I mean, you know you know what you get with, with Macca. He delivered it all through the New South Wales Cup last year before he came up and produced the exact same thing in the NRL, and then this has been his first full NRL preseason. He's showing the benefits of that. Of course, they look to uh, extend him, and I included him in the youthful resignings because he's youthful in NRL years, isn't he? He's, the the miles and the tyres exactly yeah. just aren't there, and he's yeah. uh, he's also got that hunger that comes with being essentially a rookie in the NRL. Yeah, and you also saw the. Um, how fit Wiramu Greg looks uh, with the, that benefit of an Eels NRL preseason as well. Um, so, yeah, no surprises there. And, of course, um, we had before that the uh, Dylan Brown activating his exactly. player option. Yeah, and so that had been, um, been rumoured going well back into 2021, actually, but hadn't been officially invoked or activated. But this week, club did confirm that Dylan Brown has activated his player clause in his contract and he's taken up that option to the end of 2023. 
So that's a bit more security in the spine for the blue and gold, meaning that they've only got turnover at dummy half with Reed obviously leaving the club at the end of his season. But yeah, a bit of a future planning sort of short up there, which is always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And and really as well, um, something like Dylan, that uh, Dylan Brown taking up his player option, he's still going to come off contract back at the end of the season, at uh, back in uh, at, at the start of November. But it gives that period of time for uh, both he and the club to work through uh, what the nature of ex- extension beyond that might be. So, um, and little doubt that Dylan Brown's going to attract offers from elsewhere. He was probably getting those nibbles from elsewhere with just being on that on that player um, option for next year. Mm-hmm. But um, just like there was the scenario where Reg declined the player option, but then went about negotiations with Parramatta and maybe dipping the toe in the water to see what else was out there. Dylan Brown's decided, no, he's just going to take all that speculation out of there by extending uh, and taking up that player option. And then really anything can be worked out through the, uh, through the season now. Yes, sir. So yeah, good news to kick off that uh, sort of pre-game into the, that Dragons trial there. Um, like we said, shoring up depth in the forward pack and also with uh, Dylan Brown re-upping security in the spine, that most uh, vital of uh, playing groups there within the uh, the overall 13 and 17 on game days. The club also released an injury report yesterday alongside a teamless Wednesday, which we'll get to later in this podcast. But they confirmed that uh, Hayes Dunster, although there was obviously a release for this, but Hayes Dunster out for the season. Mike Acevo is still TBA as he rehabs from his own ACL injury. And I think the expected uh, timeline for this, because Ham and I, uh, good mate Ham, who does uh, work for the other podcast of me and also joins us in uh, the juniors 60s, uh, was uh, did the maths on this. We think it's sort of like round 12, round 13, round 14 maybe for Micah. He did his ACL just after Adam Dwyer. He did from the West Tigers. And um, I think Adam's reporting for a round 10 return or thereabouts. So uh, yep. sort of mid-season return for Micah there to shore up a position that needs as much help as it can get, given Hayes' loss. Um, but then also confirming that Nathan Brown and Wiramu Greg will be back for round one action. Uh, Wiramu sustaining a calf injury, either from the All-Stars or from training, and Brownie obviously rehabbing from his injury from 2021. He will not play against the Penrith Panthers this week, but he should be back for the Gold Coast Titans on Sunday round one. Yeah, and that still comes down to whether BA wants him to go in really cold into uh, round one action as well, because he's he's at the stage where um, his training can increase a bit in terms of um, any contact work or pose work, that sort of thing. But um, when you've got someone who has had a long-term injury, as Nathan Brown has, then you're you're talking about their preseason has been completely different to anyone else. So uh, I think the interesting thing will come there whether if if Nathan Brown is um, structurally fit in terms of the injury itself, whether BA decides he's underdone and needs um, a bit more time of training as part of the group, or whether he decides that he comes back through New South Wales Cup 
or whether he comes back via the bench or whether the best way for him to return to full fitness is to be selected in the starting lineup and and work from there. I think that'll be an interesting selection decision come round one. That's I'm a... probably going the conservative line with my thoughts. I I don't know that he would it, if this is this is me making the selection, I wouldn't select Nathan Brown round one. I'd work for a, a little bit more uh conditioning uh before selecting him, but I'm not a first grade coach and I'm not even close to being a um, a local juniors coach. So who am I? Who am I to say? It's definitely a watch this space uh, sort of area, though, given how there are a whole bevy of options for Brad Arthur and the support staff uh, to bring Brownie back into first grade contention, wherever it is. Like you said, sort of throw him out there to the wolves, starting in round one, and let him you know, get his fitness back that way, or taking a more conservative approach. So definitely uh, monitor that situation. Um, and that obviously explains why we didn't see Wiramu in action against the Dragons. Bit of a calf niggle there, and we know that calf, in, uh, calf injuries can spiral out of control pretty badly if you don't get on top of them, so understandable why he was put on ice. But yeah, that's the injury report. Obviously, the Hayes Dunstan news really souring that, and we're going to talk about that as part of the NRL trial breakdown. Um, but before we get there, a bit more news. This is one we've spoken about in the past on the tip sheet 60s, NRL taking steps this season to appoint an independent medical official to the bunker who is going to uh, review all contact incidents and ascertain whether a player needs to leave the field due to, uh, due to concussion uh, and all sorts of other things like that. I feel like this is a good step. Uh, I hope that it's implemented in such a way that it's that it's not abused or, or opens up controversy, but I feel like this is a good step forwards for the game. Yeah, I'm... I, I'm, I haven't made up my mind about it. It, it almost feels like um, it's a telephone consultation with your doctor. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like the you you he's basing it on um, some limited information. Uh, when when I say limited information, you, you're not actually there. Um, you're going on what you're seeing in in terms of the uh, video vision. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take a wait and see approach on oh, this. Oh, one, hundred percent. Yeah, this is a like I, I do like the overarching strategy or, or sort of you know, duty of care that's been employed here by the NRL, but this could absolutely blow up in their face if it's not done properly. And uh, like you said, the the doctors are sort of they're not there in person, so they can't uh, can, uh, perform the uh, SEAT scan uh, tests that I believe are part of concussion protocols for clubs. So they're just going off the video footage and they're sort of trying to determine if the blunt force trauma in a tackle or any other you know incident in the game is enough to warrant a concussion check. So it, it takes some of that grey area out of the game with uh, you know the sort of understanding that teams have been manipulating the concussion rules at times in order to get extra interchanges. Um, I hope that it plays out uh, in a positive manner because I feel like this would be a good neutral step for the game but yeah definitely another wait and see uh, area from this podcast uh moving now oh, yeah? can i can i just uh, i you know i suppose i look i haven't i haven't read too much into it but um does that mean that uh where does that place the trainers that in, is a uh, interesting uh, point so i suppose we we now have a situation where play can only stop if a referee 
determines that the injury is severe enough as part of the new rule changes. We have a bunk of it is now handling all concussion checks. So I, I suppose that does ask an interesting question, how much should trainers be allowed on the field now? Uh, because we know that trainers often are running orders out there and, and doing a few other bits and pieces for the coaching staff. Um, what is their role on the field now? Yeah, I... I yeah, this is this is why I've got this wait and see approach because um, as soon as you just this is just the way that I see it as as soon as you introduce more people into decision making processes, I, I I just feel as if the likelihood of confusion is increased. I, I could be wrong. I mean, this could be removing confusion and as you said any any uh question marks over um tactical reasons for making medical decisions but um yeah i am i'm just i'm wary i'm wary at the moment that's all i'll say understandable understandable Uh, but moving on now Parramatta find themselves in the uh, nrl room email just a little bit uh between last week and into this week uh, Eels have long been linked to a star back row as part of their 2023 uh, recruitment drive, but more recently they've been tied to Brisbane Bronco and future, well, I was about to say Redcliffe Dolphin, but Red future the Dolphin, uh, because they're not actually the Redcliffe Dolphins, if I recall correctly. But uh, Jermaine Asako has been uh, identified as a man that could help shore up that wing uh, depth that we now find ourselves lacking with Mike Acevo out of action till mid-season in Hayes Dunster on ice for the entirety of 2022. Uh, Isako, a tad streaky in his career at the Broncos, but he's a very handy goal kicker, can also deputise at fullback too, giving you a bit of flexibility there. Um, obviously, Corey Oates is another player that's been linked to other clubs, particularly the Penrith Panthers 60s. Do you think Asako is the man to fill this uh, void for the Eels, or do you think there's someone else out there that you'd prefer we'd target? Well, first of all, it's common sense, isn't it, that you're going to have to target someone because at this stage, and I say at this stage, um, you've got Sean Russell now being selected as a starting winger. And Sean Russell is a major talent. Uh, He's possibly uh, someone who is uh, in the long term a fullback in the NRL. But at this stage, I suppose, learning the NRL trade as a winger. But underneath, and, and, and he's got two NRL games to his name, the next options in terms of specialist wingers is uh, Naiduki and Komalafi. Now, both of those are inexperienced at a New South Wales Cup level, let alone at an NRL level. I mean... Uh, Naiduki's played some New South Wales Cup and, were, and was starting to get his groove in when the competition was shut down. But, you know, he was also a bit up and down in terms of the, sele- the grade selections mm-hmm. last year. And, uh, and, and Komalafi, well, we're talking about someone there who really hasn't had New South Wales Cup experience no, to speak yeah, of. Exactly. So for them to be considered as the next in line specialist wingers makes me think that if they weren't to pick up someone else, were we to lose a player 
to injury like Simonson or, or even Sean Russell, that the next decision is um, changing, uh, making positional changes. Yeah, you can um, sort of uh, reschedule the back line. You've got Wanga Blake who's played a bit of wing and whatnot. And that's, once again, we've spoken about this whole concept. It's weakening of strength to strength and a weakness. And it, you'd be doing it by necessity. But, you know, that's what the Eels will be looking at. Well, if if you remember, in the right up until halfway through the season, I was a proponent of Wonga Blake playing on the wing. I believed that he everything about him screamed out that he was a winger. His um, his height, his pace, that um, the the carries from the backfield, everything to me said um, you're going to be better suited to the wing than the centre. And then of course we had the back end of the season where he was, I'd say, arguably one of the... If not the best centre in the competition, honestly. Yeah, yeah. and he's certainly one of our more potent attacking weapons. And his pre-season has been simply unbelievable. And His first pre-season with the club, by the way, first proper pre-season. Yeah, first first full uninterrupted. And, And what is most disappointing is that the combination really was developing with Hayes Dunster. I mean, they looked good. They looked, well, they looked like one of the best centre wing pairings that I'd seen for some time at In and Eels preseason. Like, it just, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably overstating it because of the fact that it is within the club and it is preseason. However, I, I, I couldn't have been any more impressed with what was happening during the preseason, with them as a as a combination, it just looked to be clicking. It looked like their communication was spot on. It looked like they'd been playing alongside each other for a long time. It, it, it seemed very natural. So, in in losing Hayes, we've also lost the combination. And and dare I say it, if if it comes down to positional changes, it might be that we've lost a centre to be able to gain a wing yeah. I, I don't know you know like what what will be decided upon but we have to think that if there was if we didn't pick up anyone uh, any specialist wingers that and 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 by the way if we were to recruit a specialist winger it doesn't mean that he'd necessarily consider uh, not consider Sean Russell for a wing spot but what you have to look at is where's the wing depth after that and there isn't the wing depth in terms of uh, like if you had Bailey Simonson that went out injured, you couldn't have a back line that has um, Sean Russell with two NRL games under his belt, Will Penasini with five at the moment, and another winger with zero. Like it just, I mean, it, they they could be a long term future combination of of, of centre and wing, but you, if you're debuting, literally almost debuting them as a combination together with no NRL background, gee, that's fraught with danger, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you, you, you're setting yourself up to have have players put under pressure, not because of lack of ability, but just because it is a massive, it's a massive step up from lower grade football to the NRL. And, um, you know, someone like, Will have with how he went at the end of last season is the exception. Yeah, the, the, how natural he made that progression. It's not the norm. Yeah. No, no. So, um, but yeah, the- yeah I, I think 
um, and and were it to be someone like an Isako, you're talking about the ideal situation where he's got a job to do for for twelve months. You've got the player coming back, so everyone knows what what it is. You you, you haven't got you haven't got Hayes being concerned about oh they you know they're bringing in someone and that's you know that's my spot potentially gone because you've got a bloke that's got a, a future contract elsewhere. So uh, I think it's a it's a Tavita Pango situation almost. Yeah. Comes yeah. comes to the club, tries to win, tries to win a premiership, then goes gets his payday elsewhere. Yeah, but then again, you know the the scenario, um, the, the seriousness of the situation is alleviated a little bit eventually when Sivo exactly. Returns. Yeah, there is depth coming back on the horizon. Um, even well, I suppose if Simonson gets injured, the concern is that we haven't got a right winger or a specialist right winger. But yeah, Sivo yeah. also comes back onto that left edge. Uh, and then Sean Russell, well, hopefully he's had a strong season during that, you know, three or so months that he's got the opportunity to play. Uh, but then he sort of moves back into the rotation, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's, I mean, it's been a bit of a theme for this podcast today, but it's a 100% a watch this space uh, area here because obviously the heel is going to be aggressive trying to get uh, depth or starters uh, in that wing position, whether it's a or who knows what else, because we know how volatile the NRL can be when it comes to player contracts. Um, but yeah, definitely something that's going to be uh, monitored by us and fans alike. And I think that's going to be the end of the news. Before we get into the trial breakdown versus the Dragons, mate, I need you to catch me up on our um, NRL training reports. What's doing? Yes, well, as our readers would probably note, there hasn't been a training report that I've published over the last fortnight. <gasps> and of course, there, there, there is a reason for that. Uh, we're we're talking about the team being in match preparation mode. Yeah. So it's just like the season itself when I cease doing training reports because basically the training report would be giving away how they are preparing. Preparation. Yeah. 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 How they're preparing for an opponent. Uh, And it's that line where um, I have a line with training reports where uh, I have. I can be informative to supporters, but I'm not invasive as far as the team is concerned. So uh, there's things I don't, I'm very careful to not give away in the reports, you know, various things that they might be working on or, um, or, or just how they, them, it might be that I'm, I'm seeing something evolve for, the way they're going to attack the year with um, with uh, their style of play this year. Just anything that they're working on where, I suppose to use a better term, they'd try to keep it as a trade secret. Um, that doesn't get reported on. And preparing for, to play against a, a, a specific opponent isn't something I can report on. Now, the other thing, of course, was... Um, the main session last week was conducted in driving rain and it was impossible for me to be able to see in, <laughs> in that. I, I turned up there ready to report and then the downpour literally hit. The incremental the players, was real, yeah. The, like the, it was literally the players were coming onto the field when um, you know, I had to scramble to be in the car. And um, yeah, there was no seeing anything through through the <laughs> car windows. It was 
it was cyclonic conditions. I mean cyclonic conditions. So um, all power to uh, the Eels for how they uh, prepared for the Dragons game uh, under those sort of conditions. But, um, yeah, look, uh, I there's obviously a bit that's been going on this week in preparation for the, the trials that I've been able to witness. And, again, there's nothing that I'm prepared to talk about as a result of that. So, we'll just have to wait um, until Saturday. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm not sure how that's going to leave me now in terms of future training reports because after this week, they're really preparing for round one. Yeah, 100%. So it, it might just be that I might have a final recap of uh, this preseason. It's been a preseason unlike any other because it's been one that has been uh, impacted by COVID not just a, a small period where there were players who contracted COVID, but also in terms of my accessibility to training. Yes. So um, I've had to watch from a greater distance than in previous seasons. And, you know, I've been rather fortunate to be able to watch training, you know, reasonably up close in, in past years and, and have a bit of communication with the staff and, about what's been going on with different players or, or you know, different things that they've been working on or, or something that I might see at training and I ask for a bit of a bit of an explanation about what it was about. So that interactivity, um, although it wasn't what you'd call a, a regular feature of being able to be down at training, there was just no option this year. So, you know, it was... Um, I won't say that I was in the dark watching things, but it just wasn't the same as past pre-seasons. So um, I'm, was, I, I guess I'm saying I'm looking forward to no more COVID interrupting uh, our rugby league, either, either pre-seasons or seasons itself. There you go, ladies and gents. 60s uh, explaining the logic behind why a training report's been wrapped up, and it is very logical. When you lay it out like that, mate, like you said, it's – uh, but it, it's a symbiotic or reciprocal relationship you have with both fans and the club here where you're trying to keep fans as informed as possible without harming the club's aspirations towards victory in a given week in the NRL. So that's why training reports are wrapped up. Um, but maybe we can get that big uh, pre-season wrap-up with some awards or something like that uh, from uh, from yourself, mate, seeing who's the best trainers and the sort of the your breakout star for 2022 but uh, that's a, another watch this space thing. Got to stop using that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my predictions based on the preseason. I'll, there you go. I'll, I'll probably be writing it a bit different to uh, previous preseasons, where I try to give a report on every single player, just to you know give a mention about how they're how they're tracking. I think it's a bit. It's been a bit unfair this preseason because I just haven't had the accessibility to. Um, try to target watching particular players throughout the preseason and, and and get an idea of how every person's gone. I can get you know I've, I've got some rough ideas for some, but I think it's just unfair. I think I'll 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 go with a few season awards and predictions as my way of wrapping things up there. Too easy. Alrighty, that's all the news and sort of updates and announcements that we had to get through in this opening. What was it? Half an hour? Yeah, 27 minutes. Let's dive into the action from the weekend, mate, because there was plenty of it between trials and uh, actual uh, live matches in the juniors. Uh, we'll go for in reverse chronological order because that's what everyone wants to hear. 
with the NRL, obviously, uh, Sunday out at Combank, formerly Bankwest Stadium, but now the uh, parent company's got the naming rights there. Uh, Eels took on the St. George Illawarra Dragons as part of a doubleheader, which was a bit of a feature in the preseason uh, in that round. Um, unfortunately, the Eels did fall 22-26 against St. George. Eels off to a hot start out to 16 nil in the Eolian periods before one of the biggest possession droughts I've ever seen. It felt like the, the Dragons had all the ball for close to 30 or 35 minutes um, from that after that opening quarter. Um, but for the Eels, Hayes Perham, who had a good game, opened the scoring, followed by Oregon Kafusi off that beautifully worked dummy half play by Reed Marnie. Sean Russell and Solomon Naiduki rounding out the try scorers. Jordan Rankin was free from four. Sean Russell 0 from 1 for the five try conversions. There is a, a real um, unsavory incident we need to talk about surrounding Hayes Dunster's season-ending injury, but we'll get to that later, mate. Let's break down the football first. Eels dominant in that opening 20 minutes. St. George ground their way back into the game on the back of uh, both some really like fortunate kick deflections and, and whatnot and some hard work on their own. What did you make of this one? Uh, who stood out? What do you need to see the Eels improve on or build from out of this result? Well, it, as you said, it was really a match that um, was determined by possession. So we had that possession early on in the trial and looked the goods. I mean, like we, it seemed like I, I was there and I was uh, positioned in the stands above the northern end where all that action was happening from Parramatta in that in that first period. And to be honest, I thought to myself, we're going to put 40 to 50 on here. It, it seemed that whenever the ball was shifted, especially to the left, that there was space and opportunity to be found. And St. George were backpedaling. Um, we looked like a well-oiled machine. And then, as you said, possession dried up. And it just felt like it just felt strange after that. And as you said, there were kick deflections. There was, um, yeah, the, the the tries just felt strange from St. George. They, they weren't tries that seemed to, where we were constructing it with uh, plays that were dissecting the defence. It just seemed that, yeah, there was that deflection one. There was a step off the right foot that got... Marada, I believe it was caught out out in the centres, right on the line. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was like, and I'm obviously biased in this opinion, but it was like I was watching one game and the football was attractive and then I'm watching the next part of the game and it was ugly. Now, I mean, obviously attractive and ugly depends on your perspective in terms of whether you're a, an Eel supporter or a Dragon supporter, but it just seemed like completely different games of football. I thought we used the ball in a different way to how the Dragons used the ball. The The thing that the Dragons ended up doing that impressed me was their second phase and their ball movement, like, like really in the back end of the, of the game. I thought that they were doing that quite well. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, there was some stats, mate, that, and, and I put it in the in the bumpers up column because we talked about that possession rate. So overall it ended up that we had 44% possession. I think it said the second half we had 42% possession 
and even that felt a bit strange to me. That I I, I would have picked it as being lower, um, but the penalty count was six to two to the Dragons. Plus they had set restarts. I don't have any stats on that, but those two penalties were foul play. The, par- yeah. the, the Parramatta received came from the tackles, and yeah. they weren't immediately ruled on by the referee. It was like the result of the injury and um, the reports that were coming in. Um, so we didn't, uh, apart from that, St. George were perfect. Yeah, perfect. And this isn't the first time against the Dragons something similar has happened, I, I believe, in 2017, I want to say. We had a game that we eventually ended up winning, but we didn't get a penalty until like the 65th minute um, in that game where uh, the Dragons somehow have uh, perfect, and this isn't a shot at the Dragons, it's obviously an officiating no. thing. Um, the Dragons have perfect general field discipline against us, which blows your mind because you just know it's not true. Um, was that the game where Kane Evans was sent to the bin for being for being too for tackling too hard? Oh, maybe it was. I'm trying to, yeah. Which would like, would have been 2017 because he wasn't part of that squad. But maybe there was two games then because I I remember Corey Norman essentially kicking us to a victory in it might have been 2017 against the Dragons, and then there was also that game where. The, the referee literally told Kane Evans he is going to the bin because he tackled too hard. Uh, yeah. And like, because the, I think he, his peck made contact with the head because he's, you know, freaking five meters tall. Um, and there was like no shoulder or, or a bicep making head contact. And the referee said, no, you've got to go to the bin for tackling too hard. Uh, yeah. Now, now, these, these stats, I think, back up what I was saying about the way we use the ball as compared to the way the Dragons use the ball and how it just, the the rest of the match just felt like there was something wrong about it. Um, so the Eels made, and again, bear in mind, you're talking about a, a significant difference in possession, 44% to 56%. The Eels made more running metres, 1197 to 1113. More post contact meters, three sixty four to three three nine. More line breaks, six to four. Missed fewer tackles. We missed eleven tackles. The Dragons missed twenty four. We made fewer errors. We made eight. The Dragons made twelve. So I I looked at some points where we made errors, and we made errors before the Dragons scored some tries. So we were punished when we made those errors. And you go, okay, how do you prevent? a try being scored, number one, you don't make the error in the first place. And number two, if you make an error, you defend it. So you, you, if you look at what went wrong, that's where the team looks in the mirror and goes, well, we've got to make sure that we get that out of our game. But as I said, I, I still look at it and I go, the, the, the stats actually tell me what I was seeing with my own eyes or, or the feeling that I had after the game that, um, and, and the trial itself is inconsequential in terms of what, how much it matters, but it, it just felt strange being out there. Like I, as I said, I walked out of the ground and I wasn't disappointed. I was just walking out going like scratching my head as to how, how does that turn out that way? Do you know what? It gave me a similar feel to remember when we played the Raiders in the first trial out at St. Mary's. Yes. And, yep. Yep. and the Raiders ended up off, uh, with a, a late win. I think it was Charles Nickel Clockstad, who we, we didn't know as much about then. And he was playing he just he just transferred game. to the Raiders, yeah. Yeah. And I think he, from memory, I think he got the winning try out of the blue right at the end of the game where 
I think the ball went loose and he picked it up and ran just about the length of the field. I had that in the in the back of my head that that ended up being a significant play towards the end. But it was like when uh, at the start of the game, Parramatta were, you know, a lot more dominant and then it was it just got a bit scrappy and um, the Raiders ended up winning. Um, it had that sort of feel about it where you walk out thinking, well, I don't know how the final result came that way. It was just a strange <laughs> way it unfolded. And really, when you think about it, when you've got the unlimited interchanges and that many and different Sim, players... Simbin's not on. actually enforced, so you're always yeah. 13 on 13. The Dragons... I mean, obviously, the Eels did have a Simbin against them as well, but the Dragons should have been down to 11 men uh, oh, yeah. in that exchange, which obviously yes. completely changes the complexion of that contest but it is the preseason. you do want to be getting 13 on 13 reps which is why there's obviously an agreement in place but speaking can of I get those, your opinion can i just quickly get your opinion on that with the with the sin bin i was I actually mean, going to go straight into that too yeah <laughs> so this is this is my question about it listening to the commentary when i, I watched the replay on it and they were talking about the the sin bin and they were relating contact. it to the magic round up in brisbane yeah and how often it was used Given that there was replacements allowed for the sin bin, do you think the referees were a bit freer in their use of the sin bin, knowing that it wasn't disadvantaging? Yeah, almost, almost certainly. And also they can use it as a platform to almost like a fear campaign, right? To just instill yes. a bit of concern into the clubs about a crackdown on high contact. And the, obviously that operative word that's back is forcible, forcible contact to the head. Um, but then again, it wasn't even consistently employed or deployed across the preseason round one or week one. I watched uh, the Newcastle Canterbury game, and there was a high shot worse than anything that either of our teams, the Dragons or the Eels, in, the, in that contest did that just got a penalty. It's just a yeah. classic NRL consistent inconsistency, I suppose. But yes, I, I do think that uh, much like a, you know, a team like say the Bulldogs, who are well and truly out of the running of the eight and can sort of free their arms and play a bit more open football with no uh, consequences or, or pressure and they start getting results, referees can also levy the Simbin far more aggressively when they know that it's not going to impact the game. Yeah, yep. But yes, yeah, so that, that was something I was going to ask you about in, in a very similar frame, so uh, like minds there. Let's talk about the Eels though, mate. Um, we did name quite a few NRL starters or NRL contributors uh, amongst the uh, bench and whatnot. By and large, I thought our NRL graded players did quite well. First look at Bailey Simonson, probably a bit of a quiet game from the flanker. He did bomb a try, unfortunately. But looking across the, the board, obviously we're going to put an asterisk next to Hayes, given that he was taken out of action. But uh, young Jake Arthur, Oregon Kafusi, Reed Marnie, Makatoa, Murata Lane, Stoney, off the bench, I thought Cartwright did some good things. All the NRL graded players, all the guys that are going to be important contributors to a potential premiership push, I thought they started pretty strongly for 2022. I did. Now, just where you mentioned about Simonson with the quiet game, I think you basically have to say that our right side that, didn't see any ball. Yeah, that, that is actually a, think, fair, a fair note, is that we just did so much work down our left with Sean Lane and Hayes Perham in, in combination down that edge. That uh, I mean, Will Penasini had two runs. We did not go to our strike yeah. superstar young centre at all. And barring that one outstanding kick from Jake Arthur, that was pretty much all Bailey got in terms of a, a look at the goal line as well. Well, look, Jordan Rankin was taking the ball to the right, but the the 
the plays that were happening on the right side tended to feature um, Murata steaming onto the ball, or you know, an edge forward hitting the hitting the ball there, or or maybe a play from from Rankin rather than the ball going further out wide. So, um, and it's, we're not saying that you, you have to push the ball out wide. Um, you know, when you when you if the if the opportunity isn't there, but it, it seemed to me that um, it was impossible to judge the the form of either player when the ball just wasn't really getting there, and for both of them to be um, unable to really make their presence felt, then you have to think: number one, um, our play is not getting there, and number two the kicking isn't really going to that corner either. So uh, the St. George kicking. So they weren't really showing anything at all, not, not in kick returns, not in, not in uh, attacking plays. Um, So yeah, it's, uh, I'll, I'll put, you've got an asterisk next to Hayes in terms of what, you know, that we really didn't get to see anything from Hayes because of the injury, but I've got an asterisk next to, Simonson and Penasini because I, I didn't see enough of them. Yep, fair enough. Um, but among the forwards, Makasi Makatoa continuing that outstanding campaign he started last year. 17 runs, 170 metres, absolute workhorse. Uh, gets fraud on both sides of the ball as well. He's going to be uh, a valuable contributor off the bench in first grade this year. But uh, outside of those guys that we, we know, uh, especially in the broader fan base, those, you know, sort of, either certified stars or solidified first graders. What did you see from the fringe guys? What did you see from the young prospects? What did you see from the new faces at the club, mate? Who who improved their stock in this game? Who has bounced up those depth charts and put themselves into the sort of outside conversation for first grade down the track this year? Yeah, well, I think as far as I was concerned, I don't think personally like I learned anything new because – the things that I was expecting to see based on the preseason, I think I saw it in the trial. Um, and by that, I mean, I thought um, Jake Arthur had a very good game. I think he's stamping himself as, an, uh, if he's not an NRL player now, in terms of like a, a starting player, and he's not hasn't been selected in the starting lineup, I think he's shown enough that, fans wouldn't be concerned if you had an injury to either of our halves. I think he's just growing in stature. Um, next was um, someone like uh, Ray Stone. Now, when I was making my predictions for the round one team, I hadn't included Stone in there, but I had been reporting in the, in the preseason that he's the fittest that I'd ever seen him. Like he was simply any sort of um, conditioning work, he was just outstanding. And and basically, what that meant was when they were having opposed sessions, he was just tackling everything that moved. Like he was he was just relentless. And I thought I saw that from him in the trial, where his line speed, and and I'm not just talking about the line speed moving up in the tackle, but when he was involved in the tackle. When he got off there, if he wasn't in one of the marker positions, I don't know if you noticed how quickly he was sprinting back into position. It was phenomenal. Like, you weren't going to catch him out of position. Um, that that I mean, the level of fitness you need to be able to do that time and time again was, yeah, it, 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 was, it was impressive. 
Um, I like Cody Rodwell. I liked his contribution. Magnum PI. Yeah, he had a good game. Yeah, and um, and I thought uh, Brendan Hands looked busy when he came on as well. I didn't. He, Twenty-two he tackles, one ineffective. Yeah, no missed. Yeah, and apart from that, I thought Sean Russell justified his selection in this week's trial with um, some key moments. I thought for a start, he had that the tackle. Yeah, no but, right to make that tackle. No, uh, no. I thought I, I was I was thinking this is a try, certain try. Now, yeah. Given how he made the tackle, and when you look at it, he made that tackle with strength. He didn't make it with yeah, a shoulder. Yeah, no. Moses Sui, who's an absolute titan, he got almost ragdolled. Really, he got thrown to the ground and rolled over. Uh, yeah, a, a huge play in the context of that game defensively, and obviously we're going to lose. But that was. Like close to first v first right there, so huge play. And out, outside of one little brain favour, he stuck his hand out for a kick that was going yeah. over the sideline. I thought Russell was very good, both at wing and fullback. He got a chance to play fullback in the second half, had some nice carries there. And um, we didn't have the possession or the the field position to really uh, let him flex his playmaking muscles. But uh, we know that for what we've seen in the flag with him and and in the junior reps two sixties that he is a very accomplished ball player uh, in his own right. But yeah, I think that Russell definitely uh, enhanced his credentials. And even if Hayes hadn't been hurt, he, he obviously wouldn't have been picked for round one. But it would have been a case of, all right, well, if there is an opportunity for Sean, we know that he's you know more than ready to step up. Yeah, and um, I thought when he went to fullback, just some of uh, some of those carries he was making around the ruck, where you could see his elusiveness and the increase in confidence that he seems to have this year now. I, I'm not questioning his confidence from last year, but it's like he's, you can tell that players feel that they belong a lot more. And if I was to make an overall comment about uh, the preseason with some of the uh, younger players is, is that you can see that they were... Um, not they see themselves as belonging yeah. in, in that group now. So, uh, they're, they're, like, there's no self-doubt that, mm-hmm. that's there. So, And I thought that that transferred into his game on Sunday. So, um, yeah, I don't – the thing with trials that, that I've done more and more over the years is I start looking at things like individual performances in the, in the trials, um, attitudes – um, an ad- attitude being, um, you know, probably more manifest in in defence than anything else. But you know, I'm looking for them to be, com- you know, having that competitive attitude out there for individuals to maybe show me what they've shown during the preseason. Is that going to continue on? Um, combinations are a bit tough to make yeah, an assessment I'm, on. Definitely, definitely. And that's why it's hard to make an assessment on a team when you've got players running on and off, and and I know they've got they've got their systems and and shapes and plays that are just common, so that uh, across and it's not just across the NRL squad they they will play a very similar brand of football right through, down to junior reps, um, that is, is like the club brand of football, so that as players um, transition up through the grades that they are fully aware of what sort of role they need to play and, um, and, and some of the plays even that, um, that are there. So, 
Um, yeah, I mean, you, you do expect the players are, are going to come in and, and fill a particular role, but nothing substitutes for knowing the player next to you and 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 almost having that. Um, uh, uh, I suppose it's that it's that understanding of what they're about to do. It's almost like mind reading, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. he, he's going to do this. Um, and you used to you used to say that um, players that. Um, that seem to have this um, ability more than others to, uh, I'm talking about combinations of players to understand, to, you know, one, if one was in a certain position on the field, the other one seemed to be following them. You know, they, they just knew and understood what they were doing. And it's, you do need that verbal communication and calling out out there. But, you know, when you've got that understanding that you know what the bloke next to you is going to do and what their attitude is going to be. There's a lot that comes from that. So yeah, that's hard to judge in trials, isn't it? When you've got yeah, players on exactly, top. Exactly. Uh, last player probably we will shout out. Um, I do want to give Sean Lane a rap as a captain too. That was a very good game from the big man, but we mentioned this by a re-upping of the club before he took to the field on Sunday off Hickey Ogden. You said it was a mixed bag sixties. He got through a lot of work defensively, 28 tackles, three missed one ineffective, but by and large, quite strong defensively. I thought, um, just the five carries for 41 runs um, offensively and the error, which the team probably could have challenged, I felt, and uh, and probably gotten a penalty. But, yeah, you said mixed bag. I don't think you're too far off the mark. Um, it certainly wasn't you know, a, a dominant showing from the big man. But I, I think that is definitely something the club was happy to work with for what they saw. Oh, yeah, yeah. So when I said a mixed bag, I mean, um, he's been really impressive at training like really impressive. So perhaps I had higher expectations out there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing, there was nothing wrong with his performance in a trial out there. Um, but uh, I, I suppose what I'm saying is I think it was a performance where he didn't demand to be selected. That's fair. In the, in, yeah. in the, in the and opening in, rounds. In his corresponding trial last year against the Dragons, we saw guys like Makatoa and Papali'i really announce themselves um, in, a, in a way that sort of meant that they had to play against Penrith as part of that top 17. Yeah, course, yeah. So, so I, I know that um, what I've seen during the preseason is probably what the club was also seeing. Well, undoubtedly, it's what the club was also seeing, the coaches, and they're seeing a lot more than what I am. They're... They've got not only are they closer to the action, but they've got the drone footage that they review. Exactly. They they've got feedback that they'd be getting from the senior players in the team about how someone's travelling. You've got all the coaches, you've got the consultants, and all of them are looking at not just the live action, but they're looking at the at the footage and even our consultants when they're if they're not there in person, again they're looking at the footage and given given their opinions and feedback. On that, so uh, and and I'll talk more about that when we start to look at the breakdown of the uh, of the trial team selections this week. All right, let's get a move on because we are rambling a bit here. Uh, by and large, it was a reasonable trial for the Eels. Uh, got some good tries, got some good uh, tape in that first twenty minutes. But one of the mission statements in any preseason fixture is to get out without a serious injury. And unfortunately, there was a black mark on this game. Tyrell Formiano executing a hip drop tackle on, uh, he's not quite brother-in-law, but his, his uh, sister is dating Hayes Dunster in a, a funny twist. I say funny very loosely uh, to this entire saga. Um, 
the Parramatta Eels came out and showed solidarity for Tyrell 60s. They said that they didn't feel there was any malice in it. Um, and I tend to agree uh, to a large extent. But for Tyrell, there is a history or a play pattern of behavior here with the hip drop tackles. It's not his first run in with the judiciary for this particular charge. And I don't think he's going out there with the intention to use it as a weapon, but rather technically he has an issue with his kit bag defensively where it needs to be addressed by himself and by the Dragons. Um, but he has accepted a five-week bound early guilty plea for the hip drop, I believe. But for Hayes Dunster, um, it went from being a, a probable MCL injury to being a complete rupturing of his MCL, ACL and PCL in an absolutely devastating season-ending injury and, you know, who knows, potentially career-threatening injury, the way these things can play out down the road, even with the benefits of modern science. This is a bit of a sensitive topic for, for you know, a lot of people because a player's gone out for the season. Eels obviously hurt badly. A young player that was looking to solidify himself to be a, a plus starter um, in Hayes. But like I said, for Tyrell, you've heard the players come out from the Parramatta Eels saying that they don't feel there was malice in it. How do you read this whole situation? What should the NRL be doing? Um, should they be intervening with St. George Illawarra and saying, look, he has a history of behaviour when it comes to this type of tackle. You need to fix that or we will uh, enforce penalties upon the club itself. Or should the Dragons and, and, and Tyrell be dealing with that internally? Well, I think really there's the process where if he does it again, he's going to have more waiting, isn't he? The, but like this the, is this is something I spoke with the boys that 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 only goes so far, because literally yeah. the loading penalty is cap at seventy percent with the judiciary. It's fifty yeah. percent for a prior offence, a prior similar offence, twenty percent for a prior non similar offence. So he'd be getting the full seventy percent loading every time he goes back, given he's been at judiciary for a number of things, including the uh, uh, Melbourne Storm Pappenhausen high shot in Magic Round last year. Um, at, at what point do you need to escalate the penalties to? Five weeks, which is a significant penalty in and of itself, but to a season, to half a season, to yeah, does it need to be a more significant monetary penalty? Um, yeah. Because once, once again, I, this, this I, isn't a reflection as a personal attack on someone like Tyrell, but when there is a, a pattern or system of behaviour uh, that is you know seriously hurting other players, it needs to be nipped in the bud aggressively. Yeah, it's a really difficult area, I think, because the moment that you make a decision based on uh, one type of tackle where the penalties really escalate uh, for repeat offences, then that gets applied to other types of tackles. And and let me use one as an example, the crusher tackle. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue that 80% of crusher tackles cannot be avoided. The way because, the way in the modern game so many players back yeah. themselves in the contact and sort of fold themselves over looking for a fast play of the ball, it definitely contributes significantly to the uptick or the rise in crusher tackles 100%. Correct. So if you have a structure in the penalties for illegal tackles, it applies then to every... Uh, tackle that's deemed illegal and as i said something like the the crusher tackle which is some it is far more frequent say than the hip drop tackle you are going to have um players who are in the middle of the field and are engaged in a lot more 
defence than, say, your edge players um, who might might find themselves in a bit of trouble for innocuous tackles. So, I mean, let, let's and, – and, and the thing is, with the crusher tackle – and it affect and it and it being around the neck and where you've got that onus that's I think should be put on the attacking player as much as the defending player. Like if you back into the defense and you drop in the tackle so that your head is around the stomach or the chest of the person of the defender that you've you backed into. Voluntarily submitted into a crusher tackle, right? Yes. Yeah. And how often do we see it? And it's not they're not a judge that way. If 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 you've made a tackle which puts pressure on the neck, regardless of how it's come about, you're going to be found guilty of a crusher tackle. And I just think that if we had an escalating um, sequence of penalties that would be ideal for eliminating one type of tackle, it's going to overly punish another now that's just my thoughts off the top of the head with that but see i i've i've got a real thing about about the what's deemed as a crusher tackle because i think <laughs> you talk I, about I, gray areas <laughs> yeah 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 and then you also have the hip drop tackle where somehow junior was found guilty of a hip drop tackle for something that was like no. how on earth is that deemed a hip drop like it just it just wasn't um, and I see, I agree w- with you in terms of, uh, and the club that maybe the intent isn't there with Fui Mayono and, and I'm sure that he's feeling the emotions of, um, of the victim of this being someone that he's close to. Um, but man, you, you've, you've got to look at it and go, geez, that's reckless. If you're, mm-hmm. if you're. If you're that, that's the thing is that there is a pattern of behavior here. It's not the yeah. first time he has done this to another player. And so I don't think it is malice, but clearly there is a technical problem with how he approaches defense and how the Dragons are letting him approach defense that needs to be rectified ASAP. Well, I, I mean, I think in this instance where, you know, he's likely to face um, similar penalties in the future, I think it ends up being that his his contract is what suffers because the the club is unlikely to sign anyone to a significant contract who's going to miss potentially oh, yeah. Yeah. a quarter or a third of the season every year because of a tackling technique and they don't want to be and, and um, you know that that would have been close to Lee well, certainly would have been at least Sinbin again in a, an NRL match and no replacement coming on uh, with the with the prospect that maybe it ends up a send-off for um, for the seriousness of the injury that he's that he's um, put onto an, an opposition player. No team wants to go into a period of time in a game where they've got someone in the bin or someone sent off. Yeah, I I, I think there is an there is even under the current system there is a a a natural consequence to the player that if he doesn't address this, that it will adversely affect him and, and his team and the, the, his coach is going to first of all, deal with that anyway, because I don't think, um, I don't think he's going to be a walk-up selection now for, 
his team when he comes back from suspension. Um, and if he was making similar sorts of tackles, um, even if he was put on report for something that looked like it but wasn't, I reckon the coach starts to look at it and go, mate, we, we can't have this in your technique. You know it's going to be one of those things that if he's doing it in a game, it might occasionally come up even at training. Like you've got to think that it's true, um, true. that if it's if it's in there because if it doesn't come up at training, then you then you start to think is it intentional in a game? Do you know what I mean? Like they they make they make far more tackles in preseason and in and in um, and in their training than they probably do playing matches throughout the year. So um, I mean they're 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 making tackles in the preseason probably three times a week in a, in opposed work. So, um, you know, it's the, the odds say if he's got a flaw in what he's doing, games aren't the only time that it, that it's there. So do you want someone in your squad doing that? So it's a fair question. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, it's that, that's just my thoughts. I mean, maybe, you know, there might be, smarter minds than mine that can come up with um, ways of dealing with it. I just, I just don't think we could have blanket escalating um, penalties because of the fact that there are other contentious tackles out there that I don't think warrant the level of attention that they get or the consequences that they get. So there we go. anyway, let's just, wrap just, up the, uh, that the NRL trial wrap there um obviously some very uh not i suppose controversial but uh thought-provoking uh issues to come out of it for the eels obviously they will now gear up for the trial against penrith we'll talk about that shortly there were some other games on the weekend which we're going to blast through very quickly because we are uh, going well into overtime here on the podcast this week um but how unusual you know, us running over time never never we are just the you know epitome of punctuality and and you know, working to deadlines efficiently. Um, but prior to the NRL kickoff, there was a jersey flag trial at Ringrose Park. We weren't able to get over in attendance, 60s, but our good friend Ham, we've dropped his name a few times there uh, today, was out there to watch the Dragons win this trial, three tries to one over the Parramatta Eels. Uh, Ham did mention in passing to me that he uh, thought the Eels played fairly well, um, liked uh, what newcomer Dantore Louis, former Dragon himself actually, uh, did he score the only try for the Eels and was quite busy working in the halves? Uh, Corey Fenning uh, came to us via way of the uh, Sydney Roosters, I believe, uh, was at fullback, and Ham said he was uh, quite impactful as well. Mentioned there was a few other players that had good games too. Uh, so uh, one of those ones where this is a, a team that we're very unfamiliar with because of the influx of new faces from outside of the Parramatta district, as well as some of those graduates that have pro progressed internally too. And we're just going to have to familiarise ourselves with them over the course of the season. Um, but yeah, so three tries and one loss for the flag. Uh, far from a, an awful result, I suppose, in the context of the preseason. Um, but on Saturday, mate, there was actual proper games in action out at uh, Camden, out in the boonies in southwestern Sydney. Um, but we weren't out in this one too. And, and probably thankfully not. It was a bit of a mixed bag for the Eels. They got a win, a loss and a draw. Uh, kicking off the Tasha Gale, who are by far the most impressive team on the day. They knocked off the uh, the highly fancied West Tigers, 24-16. Jacinta Tui, Ashley Pottinger, and Rosemary Beckett all scoring. But it was uh, Alicia Bell challenging the spirit of Hazem El-Masri 
free from free from free for the try conversions and adding a further free from free for the penalty goals, mate. Twelve points on her Pat Malone being the crucial difference between the two teams. And this is something that you've spoken about about how valuable it is to have a sharpshooter in any team, let alone Natasha Gale and Alicia Bell. Almost like a sneaky MVP for the Eels in their first three rounds. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, I uh, am in a position where I was able to watch um, all of the three matches um, on Saturday. And um, outlook, the Tasha Gale girls uh, continue to improve. They've got, I've got a lot of time for uh, Pottinger at, at dummy half. She is, she is a wily dummy half. She knows when to get out, when to distribute the ball, and she brings uh, plenty of uh, strength defensively and offensively. Uh, you know, whether it's making tackles or making powerful charges. Yeah, and and really, uh, the the work of our of, of the Eels pack is, I, I mean, they function as a pack nowadays. They they look for the offloads. They they will run up in pairs and and get an offload away and and challenge the defence in in that regard. So I I think we've got a, an extremely strong pack, um, and. Uh, and, and we've got there's the pace in the backs that if they get an opportunity they're they're going to make the best of it and um, but as you said the goal kicking of Bell I mean I don't think I've seen anything like this in the um, certainly not in the in the uh, pathways with the girls someone who kicks like her. Just to emphasise this to anyone that's listening and didn't and didn't read any of the reports, she kicks six out of six, and and they weren't they weren't throwovers, yeah. But yeah, some of these kicks are from out wide. So anyone that's familiar with with watching the women's game knows that the ball just is doesn't seem to be struck as sweetly as what it is in the in the men's game. But she's a... I wonder if she's got a background in, in, in soccer or football. Um, well, she's certainly an exception to the rule because she's getting that distance from out wide mm. and, um, and, and striking them with such accuracy. It's, uh, it's, it's quite stunning to watch. And that means that the team... And, and, and like her kicking may well just be the prototype where of of what where the future lies that within the women's game that you can that you might start to get the specialist kickers who can has, who can has Masri literally forged a fantastic NRL career being a solid winger that was an absolute sharpshooter if you're yeah. if you're good enough adding those extra points you will get a career as a professional footballer because, like we said, scoring in, in batches of sixes instead of fours and being able to hit those crucial penalty goals, that wins you the big games. Oh, yeah, and and that's what I was just about to lead into is that this Parramatta team goes up in batches of six rather than in batches of four. And uh, they their previous win, she provided the difference between the teams yep. where the tries were equal. And the same things happened again on the weekend. I, mind you, I, I thought that um, the Eels were the better team and that the score was reflective of of how much better that they were. Yeah, eight, eight points but, is, a, is a good lead, yeah. But the 
the fact that it's coming from the boot of Bell says how important it is to have an accurate kicker there because you might be the better team, but if, if you lose based on, on goal kicks... Yeah, it, ha- it happens really a lot in rugby league. Yep. Yeah, that, that, you know, the frustration of, of that happening is, is, isn't good for team morale. So, you know, you can imagine the confidence that the girls have that when they're getting over for a try, there's a fair chance they're going to get a six-point reward for the try. And that that allows them, you know, either to jump ahead of their opposition or to draw up level with them when the scores are close, or to or to kick further away. It's it's just such an advantage to have, and it's been proven in in their two wins so far. So really impressed with uh, with how they went. That uh, you know, it, it it was a it was quite a good game of football between. I mean, uh, the West the West, West Tigers are. Uh, what we believe to be a presumable top four contender. They're one of the more highly touted outfits in this competition alongside the Roosters Indigenous Academy, the Dragons, and uh, was it the Bulldogs, I believe, Joey Grimer listed as the other uh, sort of like big dog, pardon the pun, and the Eels have knocked over two of them now and um, nearly nearly pushed the third in round one. So really, yeah, and, really and good Can signs. I say, the, the, the West Tigers had some fiery players who, you know, played the game very aggressively and 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 I would say to the Parramatta uh, team's credit is that they're getting the job done without having, um, you know, like being in the ref's face or 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 looking as if they're they're ready to engage the opposition in in um, you know a bit of niggle or anything like that. And and I thought that there was a little bit of a difference between the two teams from that regard, from from uh, from that match. Um, the rest of the of the junior reps, it's not a good story. No. And before we get there, just to mention that that win propels the girls into eighth spot in the ladder, which doesn't seem that high, given that they're two on one, but it actually is an equal share of fourth. Uh, I believe Newcastle Knights have the fourth position currently, but for and against. Literally decides fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Eels positive to Newcastle, I believe positive forty-eight or positive fifty off the top of my head. So that's the, the literally the difference between the, the girls being in the top, that coveted top six right now, and they can definitely uh, chip away at that in the coming weeks, but not next week because it's a bye. But let's move on to the boys. Uh, this game, Harold Matthews was uh, part two of that triple header against the Western Suburbs Magpies and the West Tigers for the mats and ball. It was the Western Suburbs Magpies as part of that funky little joint venture split they have in the lower grades. And Eels on the uh, the wrong end of some tough calls in this 160s, going down 10-12. to 12. Michael Cabrillo opened the scoring against the run of play following a Luke Maroon uh, intercept or scoop up uh, that led to the Eels going down the upper, other end of the field. And uh, big Sam Tuovati crashing over for the second try. Muhammad Alamadine one from two, and we talk about the difference goal-kicking makes. Uh, those two points, meaning the Eels did not get a share of the competition points in this particular fixture. But yeah, some tough decisions uh, and I imagine um, some self-inflicted issues here too. Yeah, look, there was um, there was a lot that was expected of this Harold Matz team for Parramatta. And at the moment, they're probably disappointed with the way that the results have panned out. They're, they're, I mean, these have been games that they could have won that, that have been lost. And when you have a two-point game and it's decided by um, a goal, um, that makes it even a, a tougher decision, a tougher, 
you know, result to face. And for the people that aren't aware of this, I'll, de- I'll describe to you how the, how the game was decided. So it was decided, basically, the Eels made an error. The um, uh, Matt Arthur was a dummy half. He's passed the ball, and it's a flat pass to the forward who's hitting the ball up, and the, the players dropped the ball, and it's been propelled forward and to a bit of an angle. From his position, Matt Arthur has chased through after the ball, so he's gone across field and downfield, so he's chased at an angle to fall on the ball. Now, when you see the incident happen, to me, first of all, as I said, the pass was flat, so he's, he's be, at worst, he's in line with where the ball's been propelled forward as the, as the players sort of hit the ball and knocked it forward. He's been penalised for being offside in that instance. Now, I would say that 99 times out of 100 that you see that in an NRL game and it's they pack the scrum. The, where you tend to see the offside call is when it's gone obviously forward to a player who is obviously in front of the, the player who's knocked the ball forward and often in it, oftentimes they're directly in front of them when it happens. And sometimes it's called accidental when they don't make a play at it. Other times they fall on it to avoid, to prevent the opposition from maybe scoring a try um, and give away the penalty. This, I thought it was a really tough call. Um, and the thing is, you can't necessarily definitively have called it incorrect, but it was a call that was made from 30... 25, 30 metres out directly in front of the posts and it gave the it basically gave the winning kick for goal. Now, I look at it two ways. First of all, you eliminate the error and there's no penalty that occurs. So straight away, the team have to look at um, errors have been costly again and there were far too many incomplete sets during the game and in the end, one of those incomplete sets provided a penalty and the loss. But, geez, I thought it was a tough call at, at, at an under-17s level on what was a line ball decision. And, and I can't back away from that being a tough call to lose on. And I can't say the ref was definitively wrong because, you know, if you got out, if you got out the uh, protractors and, and what have you and worked out angles and where players were, he may have been proven to be correct. In fact, I don't think it was the ref. I'm pretty sure it might have been the sideline official mm-hmm. that might have called it. Um, but anyway, as I said, tough call. And I think there were a couple of tough calls that you know the Eels faced. What I will say about the West Tigers, uh, sorry, the West Magpies it was at that level, is that they played a very, very aggressive brand of football. And that um, they were that brand of football gave them a little bit of an advantage that they were playing. And I think they won it on the back of that aggressive brand of football that I, 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 there was a lot of niggle. There was a lot of instances when a tackle would be made and you'd see the player charging out of the line after the tackle, wanting to have their say or have a go at whoever's 
made the ta- it was just one of those sorts of niggle games. It was it was a bit ugly to watch. I wouldn't have said it was the greatest advertisement for junior rep football, to be <laughs> honest. You know, it was just like, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. And there was some good defence from the Eels early on in the game and there were some bright moments from both teams. I just thought it was a bit of an ugly game. I really did. So, And again, it still comes back to if you look in the mirror, if the Eels look in the mirror, they go, there's far too many incomplete sets and we just didn't play well enough to overcome line ball decisions. That's probably the that's probably just the, the summing it up. And uh, speaking of you know line ball stuff and close results, that escalated into the SG ball where the Eels sixteen drew with the Magpies sixteen. Big Suliasi Aho made his return to the team. I assume he's been injured. He scored the first try for the Eels. Uh, Arthur Miller Stephen, who's been fairly impressive as a new face in the squad, also adding a try himself off the bench. Riley Canning putting the Eels out to the lead late in the contest, but it wasn't enough. Magpie struck back shortly after that one to make it 16 all. Ethan Sanders, two from three from the tee. Uh, missed field goal for the halfback, unfortunately. Followed with a, or preempted rather, not followed, uh, by another squandered opportunity um, from dummy half, I believe, uh, in a crucial possession late in the game. Yeah, this one means, uh, I, I think I phrased this as uh, my chat of Ham in the other podcast that. You had two winless teams coming into this game between the Eels and the Magpies, both 0-2 heading into round three. And in a really cruel poetic twist, they both left the round winless with a draw to their name. So still both teams hunting that elusive first victory. And um, But in a macro sense, both the Eels, uh, Harold Matthews and SG Ball teams, they go into the bye. They need to win out. They're, they've got no margin for error anymore. No, no. And that's, that's a critical point to emphasise is – and and I think um, you know I'm trying to think is it the is it the SG ball I think it's the SG ball where um, they've got the Newcastle Knights who are a very very strong team in in that grade um, uh, but um, just on the on their draw that they had again squandered opportunities. Um, I thought that the teams were reasonably evenly matched. It was arguably the SG Ball's best performance of the season, uh, and I and I say that in inverted commas, and almost with that, you could hear that questioning where I where I made the statement. Um, there, there was possibly some, you know, some more positives to take out of the game. A little bit more cohesion, nowhere near where they need to be. And a couple of tough calls again that went against them, um, but again, they they pulled ahead by six points with, and they were ahead with less than ten minutes to go, and then again failed to complete a set, gave West's possession, and they duly went down and scored. Now, if you got that six-point lead and you can work through your sets and get to the kick and you play the game down the other end of the field, you're not going to have that that try score that the, the, the West Magpies did at the end of the game. And then they were still in the position to take a field goal or to take advantage of the territory because the last few minutes were paid down with the Eels on attack. 
and they couldn't execute it. It just didn't, you know. They had the they had the drop ball under the under the posts instead of, um, you know, maybe going out to the to the halfback for a field goal attempt or or for a shift. Um, it, it just was. It just seemed like wrong options were taken yeah. at the critical time of the game. So again, um, just like the the mats. You can find reasons where it was a tough loss, but ultimately you go, you know what? If you take care of the things you can control, then the loss doesn't happen. And and it's a tough thing to say when you're talking about age footballers, um, but it's still the it's still the reality, and it's a reality that I suppose the coaches have to deliver. That um, if we take care of what we need to take care of we win when we don't take care of those things we lose and that's been the message from uh each of the losses this year and and even the draw so yeah and yeah that brings a wrap on the district reps or junior reps for round three like we mentioned they'll be heading into a buy for round four and then it's all hands on deck for all three grades obviously the Tashgal in very good shape but for the ball and the mats they've got a lot of work to do got a Go take a soul searching is probably too strong a, a term for you know young men that are you know trying to enjoy their football, but just you know do some reflective work and sort of uh, maybe get back to their fundamentals and you know get get on control of the things they can control, like you mentioned sixties, and uh, that'll put them in better shape to make a charge towards the finals. We are uh, now where are we looking at the clock here? Uh, hour and twenty. You know we're just cruising here. Let's get into the the big boy stuff now, though, mate. We've got an NRL trial to preview. And the first round of the NRLW to dive into as well. Let's kick it off with the NRL trial, uh, where the Parramatta Eels have named a, a rather large squad actually for the uh, what has become a, an, an annual tradition in that little battle of the West they've got out at the Pen of Panthers. Um, all the big stars are featured as we expected, but plenty of our fringe players are going to get a chance to shine as well. Starting at fullback with the uh, co-captain Quentin Gufferson, Sean Russell winning that jersey on the wing in place of the injured Hayes Dunster. No surprises there. Bailey Simonson on the right edge. Uh, he'll partner Wanga, He'll partner Will Penaseni, sorry, on that side with Wanga Blake working with Sean Russell on the left. In the halves, Dylan Brown and Mitch Moses, uh, that all-star trio in the front row of Reagan Campbell-Gillard. Junior Paulo, newly minted as a co-captain for the team with Reed Money in between them. In the back row, Sean Lane, Isaiah Papali'i and Ryan Madison at lock forward in the absence of Nathan Brown. Uh, Makahesi Makatoa, Oregon Kafusi, Ray Stone, and probably the the most, uh, uh, I suppose, exciting, contentious, uh, uh, discussion-provoking pick, uh, Jake Alpha at 17. Then we go to the extended bench where there's Mitch Rain, Maradonia Kore, who obviously is serving suspension in round one, hence his position in this particular lineup. Ofahiki Ogden, Jordan Rankin, Brendan Hands, Kai Rodwell, Bryce Cartwright, Hayes Perham, Solomon Naiduki, Tom Opachik, and Sam Loizu, fresh back on the field from a, a stint in rehab, I believe, just a small one. But good to see Loizu back on the park. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I guess we kick off with, first of all, the fact that um, this is a nod to what the round one team or close to what the round one team is going to look like with the exception that um, – maybe there's going to be the availability of a Nathan Brown or maybe maybe BA looks at the structure of his of his bench a little bit more. So you hinted at 
the the big talking point, which is likely to be the selection of Jake Arthur on the bench. And I touched on it when I was talking about um, the trial form before and um, discussion around Jake and how he's gone in the preseason. Just to take that a little bit further, I look at it from the perspective that during the preseason, he'd impressed me from that point where I was saying, how do you find a place for him? You know, like he deserves a place. He's he's had sessions where he's been the dominant player. We saw in the trial that um, that he looked really good out there on the field. He's only 19 years of age. He's a half, but he's a tall half. He's going to get bigger. Where's his future lie? How do the how do others view him? Um, so, if first of all, I think if he's impressed me from where I'm watching at training, the coaches and um, the consultants at the club and the other players and especially the senior players, they're going to have some opinions on um, how he's going as well. And people who are talking about him being the son of the coach uh, are looking at it from a narrow perspective because a coach isn't going to put their son in there if he's not going to get the job done for a start because that doesn't serve any purpose to anyone. It doesn't help the coach in what they're trying to achieve. And if the if his son's not ready for first-grade football, that's going to be detrimental to their development. So um, you're not just talking about B.A. here. You're talking about his assistant coaches. You're talking about the consultants that are there at the club now who are involved in that, being Ennis and uh, Mary McGregor. Who are, who are probably going to be giving their opinions through the preseason. So if BA's at the point now where in a trial, he's looking at a role for Jake Arthur off the bench, then it's probably indicative of the impression that he's made right across the board with everyone that's involved in the club. And... Uh, as I said, my eyes weren't seeing something that wasn't happening out there at training. He has been one of the best performers in the preseason. He's now getting the chance to show whether that's um, just a you know internal club form or whether it's something that he can display against other opposition in the trial matches. How they uh, people are now starting to draw conclusions. How are they going to use him? This is a wrong selection. It's you know the, he's he's covers the halves. How is that of any benefit to a team? Well, let's just see how he's used. That's the big the- one for me, mate. Is it, it, it is once again the theme of this podcast. It is very much a wait and see thing because obviously his primary position is in the halves, and on the bench that. It, that gives you the sort of flexibility to cover an absolute doomsday protocol situation in a game where you know Moses or Brown gets injured. You can throw him in there, but you know is he going to be playing a bit of lock forward? We saw the Eels use small ball packages last year of Will Smith at lock forward, where yep. they're, they're able to you know have a, essentially that middle half or a guy that could play some up tempo football against fatiguing forwards and give you another point of attack uh, in the red zone. So uh, no need to leap to conclusions. The other thing that's a factor here is that. Murata Niakore and Nathan Brown aren't really in the selection mix for this game. 
Like, obviously, Murata's there in the extended bench, but they're not going to give too much game time to him when they need to get their game day 17 for round one tuned up. So, you know, this is a, a window of opportunity for the coaches to experiment with a, a talented young player. Yeah, and just as and, and just in the same way, you've got Sean Russell getting his opportunity to impress out on the wing, and then that might shape some of their decision making about the the composition of the team. Um, I still believe that, the, as I discussed before, that the Eels need to recruit a winger simply from a depth perspective, if nothing else. You know, whether it be they get a, a an NRL quality starting winger or whether they get somebody who's looking for an opportunity but has more but has some NRL experience they they need to have experience for the depth in the squad because as I said before they're now looking at if it doesn't work with Sean or if there's an injury they're probably looking at positional switches to cover this uh, shortfall that uh, now exists with two um, starting wingers no longer available in in um, in Sevo and Dunster. So, yep. I mean, it it is almost a crisis situation in that position, and um, yeah. So, again, being trial form, you've got those sorts of questions that are going to come out, and and it's um, and and I think even the players that are off the extended bench. And the, whether they, how they perform in the reserve grade trial, and how they perform when they come on, they, they could still be staking a claim for selection consideration because you've got options there. Like, um, could Perham cover a wing spot? And that's a that's a bit of a positional change as well to consider. Um, is uh, is it a situation where? Um, Ogden can force his way into the team. What about Bryce Cartwright? He was a feature of the team last year and he's on that extended bench. So has Ray Stone got the running over him for a bench spot? Um, has Oregon Kafusi got the got the um, got that spot? Or is he gonna be the player to make way when you have the return of uh, of Brown and Nick Ore? Um, these you know, are all the questions have... that we need to see answered one way or another in this trial, right? Because that, I mean, as we're so familiar with our 1 to 13 and even a good portion of the bench is wrapped up in stone or, or close to. It's, uh, you know, clad in iron because the Eels are so uh, well set over the last couple of years of this team. But who, who are the guys that can pose a question to the coaches, can make them, you know, have to at least reconsider depth charts and, and opportunities for first grade. And you've mentioned Ogden and obviously Kai Rodwell. Can Brendan Hands make a difference against his former club, the Penrith Panthers? Can he get a bit of game time and show a bit of spark out of dummy half? Um, you know, Can Sam Loizu, uh, who's got all the talent in the world but just hasn't been able to stay on the field in recent times, can he get a bit of game time and, and create a bit of a, you know, a change to the equation in the back line in terms of the, you know, the depth there? And that's uh, probably, the, the, probably the big story out of this trial is less so the, the starters and more so the, the depth guys in that regard, isn't it? Because this trial Absolutely. in recent years has, has always been played to an incredibly high standard for the preseason. In a way, it's become a marquee game in the preseason uh, with the two teams playing at such an incredibly high level and often using that as a, a reflection of what would happen in the, the season proper. Uh, but for, yeah, for the fringe guys, this is a massive, massive opportunity. Oh yeah, and and you've got you know, w- would be a 
rethink um, having a second a dummy half on the bench in, in Mitch Ray and a specialist dummy half. Mm-hmm. Um, when you've got players who are fringe players who are performing well, it allows the coach to say to the incumbent players, um, you know, you're my, you're my starting half, you're my starting fullback, you're you know, the starting dummy half, whatever the case may be, but see him. He's he's really doing everything that he needs to do. Um, you've got the spot ahead of him until you haven't got the spot ahead yeah. of him. If you know what I mean? Like you know, it's just just be aware. We want the best from you every week because if you give someone else an opportunity, they might just take it. And this bloke's giving me every reason to consider selecting him. Now you can imagine how tough that is when when BA's got one of those players is his son that's putting the pressure on and he's going to face question marks about the motivations behind selecting his son when, you know, probably truth be known, he would be more critical of what his son is producing than another coach might be. Because as I said to you, they're... I think it's. I think it was going to be unfair that he couldn't get a first grade spot after after what I was seeing in the preseason. Um, the only thing is, the players above him didn't deserve to be losing a spot. So that's why I couldn't find a spot for Jake Arthur. But if if the coach and the other uh, the other all the coaches, anyone that's involved in making decisions about select team selections or advice about team selections, if they can think of alternatives. Um, for whether it be a Jake Arthur on the bench, whether it be a Mitch Rain on the bench rather than another forward like a Ray Stone who can cover those positions, whether they get um, players playing out of position on the wing because they don't believe that they've got the specialist wings to cut, whatever the case may be, you, you've, got, um, you've got the coaches having to weigh up these sorts of considerations. And if you've got players who are putting their hand up, that's only going to be a good thing. So, um, yeah, we'll see how it pans out. And I suppose before we can make any any criticisms, we have to see how does it work and what is the methodology that's going to be used in this. Is, it, is this a plan to give one of the halves a bit of a rest, uh, rather, you know, almost wrap them up in cotton wool before the first round in, in naming Jake Arthur on the bench? Or do they have some other way that they are going to use him. So, you know, people will have to wait and see. Yes, sir. And kickoff for this game is at 5 p.m. out at, uh, what is that, the name of their stadium these days? Who's there? So it's Blue Bet. Penrith Park. Blue Bet. Penrith, Park. <laughs> yeah, Penrith Park. There is Jersey Flag and New South Wales Cup action on the day as well, but we haven't got teamless released as of Thursday uh, the 24th. So that might be Have a we got case. kickoff times. Uh, I don't know. The New South Wales, I don't think NSWRL's got the trials up. They just got regular season stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I assume what it might be a three o'clock kickoff for Cup and a one o'clock kickoff for Fleg, or, or roughly within those sort of uh, windows there. But yeah, it's a, it's a bit unfortunate we haven't got official lists because we always do love to dive into them and break them down. But yeah, but like we said, sixties. Uh, there's 
in, in trials, there's certain things you always want to see, uh, no serious injuries, obviously. Just good fundamentals from the team and, and individual players sorry individual players stepping up and making a difference. I don't think that's um, any different for this particular game. We know that Penrith are going to be an outstanding outfit in this clash. They're the reigning premiers. They've still got a young and hungry outfit. Going to be a very good litmus test for the Eels in the preseason. Good chance for these young prospects, these fringe players, uh, to push their credentials against you know as good a competition in the NRL as you're going to get. Indeed, mate. Indeed. How are we going time-wise? We are at a nice and balmy one hour and 36 minutes. So uh, let's uh, move on to the main event of this podcast because it's not a trial in the NRLW. It's round one in the uh, expanded competition. It's a brave new world for the NRLW. Uh, Three teams expanded with the New Zealand Warriors also stepping back, meaning that it's a six-team competition. There is so much to play for. The Parramatta Reels have a lot of hype surrounding their squad for good reason, they've uh, recruited phenomenally between uh, leadership and, and veteran status as well as talent and youth, and that's going to give them what we hope to be the big edge they need to dethrone the uh, faunted, the fabled Brisbane Broncos outfit who have repeated the competition. But uh, forget the Brisbane Broncos 60s because it kicks off against the Newcastle Knights, a sister expansion team for the Eels uh, in round one. The Eels will travel up the freeway to go to McDonald Jones Stadium for kickoff at 3.40pm. Coverage on all major broadcasters, so that means 9, Fox, and obviously Fox is subsidiary KO, so you, you can't miss this game by broadcast, and if you can get out to the game, obviously support a, a fantastic, well, not a new competition, but it almost is a new competition given the expansion. But uh, let's talk about the Eels, mate. Uh, this is going to be a learning process for us as fans. We are familiar with quite a number of the players in this team, but for the team itself, for their brand of football, for their identity, we don't really know. It. We haven't seen them in action, and it's going to be part of the fun of following them across the course of this. What what is going to be a, a double header season? Because obviously, there's going to be this is the 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 uh, postponed 2021 season. But yeah, we're going to be learning who this team is, how they play, how they handle adversity, how they you know can capitalize in, in close games. It's going to be really really fun. Um, and let's walk through this team, mate, and then you can tell me who you want to look look out for on Sunday. But at fullback, we've got Botil Vedi Welsh on the wings, Tyna Navidi and Ricky O'Horn. In the centres, Tiani Penatani and Giuseppe Daniels. Sorry, Tiana Penatani, not Tiani. And Giuseppe Daniels. In the halves, you've got uh, Serena Naitoka-Toka and Maddie Studden, bringing a bit of veteran experience to the team there with Maddie. In the front row, and it's a formidable front row, much like the NRL uh, counterparts, Kennedy Cherrington and Tamai Kelly Sines, who will be bookending the crafty Anita Maynard. In the back row, you've got Ellie Johnston, Jade Efferton, and captain and inspirational leader, Samai Matalfa. On the bench, Shirley Malungi, uh, Philomena Hanisi, Therese Iton, and Abby Church. And their extended bench features Christine Pauli, uh, Fatafehi Hanisi, Tess Staines, Emily Curtin, Mariva Swan, Jamie Ann Wright, and Katrina Fippen. And uh, for, for the Knights, they've got uh, Captain Romy Tetzel, Caitlin Vahakolo, uh, Jamie Fressard, Bobby Law, and Katie Green as their backline in the halves. Autumn Rain Stevens, uh, Talula Tillett, and then in the front row, Caitlin Johnson, Crystal Rota, uh, Annetta, sorry, uh, Nuasala. Then you've got uh, Ranga Marie, Edwards Bruce, Georgia, uh, Georgia, sorry, Georgia, uh, Georgia Page, uh, Shante Poco. Then in the interchange, Emma Mazelman. Charlotte Scanlon, Phoebe Desmond, and Kira Dib. Their extended roster features Matua Fetoriki, uh, Kyra Simon, uh, 
Naka, Nakatoku Toru Arakua, sorry if I got that wrong, uh, Chantel Graham, uh, Kararana Wirakohu, uh, Paige Parker, and Shannon Evans. So 24-girl or 24-woman teams for both the Knights and the Eels. Um, I'm not sure what their protocols are for players falling off a la the NRL, uh, but this is going to be a very, very exciting game. 60s, what are you looking out for? Well, as you said, there's a learning process that's involved in following the team this year where we're not just learning about the players individually, but we're learning about their combinations. Fortunately for the competition, every team is basically in the same boat because you had all these players that were named free agents so that all the clubs were literally creating rosters from scratch again, even the powerful Broncos had to do the same thing. So you've seen the talent spread amongst the clubs. Um, and really, when I say the talent spread amongst the clubs, it, there's that's where that element of recruiting skill comes into it. Did, they, did each of the franchises make the best recruitment decisions for their team? Um, you know, there's a salary cap for the women's team. I think it's around about the 600,000 mark, the salary cap. I could be wrong. Um, but, um, yeah, they are operating uh, under a salary cap, and you can imagine when you start to divide that up, you can see why, um, you know, there's the the challenges that the women face of being uh, – of working towards being professional athletes but needing to have other jobs. To yeah, it's this bizarre mix of 1980s-era rugby league and 2020s-era NRL where they're, you know, like you know the men of the 80s, they're balancing being a tradie or, or any other, you know, full-time job as well as trying to be a professional athlete. And yeah, and I think what the, what the teams, what the girls have managed to do really well is convey how special it is for them to be playing the game like that they that that real passion that they have to play rugby league and to be pioneers in moving towards professionalism within the female game of rugby league i i think that's that's so important and I, and i think there's a great mix of players that are there to take the code into that next level mm-hmm. how quickly they're able to get there we don't know because we we've literally gone from where it was a four team competition and you know, without without saying this in the wrong way, it was like an exhibition tournament where you've got um, three games and then a final. Now, it, it's a step forward that we're now got the six teams, which is five rounds, semi and the final. So we're starting to expand a bit there. I don't think it's too far down the track that there's another two teams added. And then it becomes whether, how sustaining the competition is to be expanded to two rounds yes, a, a home and away. The Warriors uh, almost certainly come back now. The borders are starting to reopen and then there'll be one other expansion team. And like you said, the, the next question becomes, do you go to a double round robin format, which I hope they do? Yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, there's there's a few whispers around that that team, that other team and, and on top of the Warriors might be someone like the West Tigers. But then you've got, clubs that are traditionally strong in women's rugby league like the Sharks and the Rabbitohs who have been um, you know pioneers in in having women's teams that 
haven't been able to their their NRL owners haven't been able to put forward cases to have um, an NRLW team there as yet. You wonder how long down the track before they dip their toe into the water. You've got to have the the player pool to be able to do it. I think that the AFLW, uh, without sounding um, having this taken the wrong way, I think maybe they've expanded a bit too quickly. I don't know that the standard of that game is as high as it should be, um, but that's for their code to decide. And I'm not, I don't understand their code enough to, to maybe make that sort of call. But I think having that right balance of having a high standard game amongst enough clubs to sustain the number of players and and what you have to remember too is we're not talking about just having the best 17 that a club can possibly have but you need you need to have 20 24 25 quality players don't you in an NRL in an NRL squad so we're talking about um, having 150 elite rugby league players, female rugby league players at the moment that uh, are capable of taking the game towards the professional level. So if you expand by another two teams, you have to have about another 50 players who are capable of taking that game to the next level. With And now with pathways getting better and better and stronger and stronger Tasha Gale competitions, that hopefully feeds into a stronger um, New South Wales uh, Harvey Norman, New South Wales competition for the women. Um, and then you start to get that flow on of players who are ready to take the next step. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's all, it's it's baby steps. And the NRL, there's something that we've spoken about, the NRL showing rare patience when it comes to actually taking care of nurturing this product so it doesn't trip over and, and collapse and fall on its own face. They've actually done the right things from the grassroots up, from the Tash Gal, the development squads, the representative scene, which is now starting to flourish, and the, and the NRLW itself. Uh, they, they want this to not walk, to not run. They want it to fly. But to do that, yeah. you've got to go through those steps carefully. Yeah, and I passionately believe that uh, women's rugby league has the potential to be the best women's team sport in the world. I really believe that. I believe that the game of rugby league and the skill of the women that are involved mm-hmm. and and the, and the way they play the game, it has the potential to capture the imagination worldwide and to be the best female team sport in the world. And um, and I'd like and and I think the NRL's going about it the right way in that regard. Um, and in terms of the in terms of the players. Um, I can go. I mean, we can we can make judgments about them as individuals and what we've seen in previous NRLW competitions. Although we have to go back to um, uh, we didn't have a competition in 2021, so we we have to go back a couple of years now. With that, um, we can look at the All Stars and interstate games to make judgments about the players across all the teams. But you know, I, I saw a little bit of them at training. And what I can say is that I like the aggressive style of football that the Eels will probably play. They want to make their mark out there on the field on their opposition. Like they want to make a physical mark on that on their opposition that they play against. Um, they've got players who 
are skilled and they want the players to back themselves and not just play within their structures, but, yeah, to really back themselves on opportunities that are there. And you'd have to say that um, they've got a back line that's got the pace. And as we saw um, in a little bit of the um, All-Stars, they've got the forwards yeah. who, who will make an impact. And, um, you know, when, when you've got uh, the a player of the quality of uh, uh, Bo Vetti Welsh at fullback, um, you've got a leader like Simone Metalfa, and you've got someone who's as crafty as Nita Maynard is at dummy half. You've got you've got a real good start, and then of course we got that high energy with with Kennedy Cherrington, <laughs> yeah. who um, you just know she's going to be up there near the top of the of the run meters, tackle count, um, the tackle count, all that sort of stuff. So uh, you know, and that's just singling out um, you know a couple of the players that people are familiar with. Uh, we could go through and list the qualities of all the players in the team and why they've deserved a spot in this starting lineup. It's just going to be exciting for people to watch and learn and discover about these players. And we've got, um, hopefully, uh, we can bring you in the next couple of weeks a couple of the NRLW players that we've been talking to about appearances on the podcast. And I'm really excited to uh, be able to profile a couple of the players and to uh, allow our listeners to learn a little bit more about them. And um, and hopefully that comes up in the next week or two when we get a, can get a few reflections on them on these uh, early rounds in this, this year's yeah, competition. and as we do learn more about the team, our previews and reviews become more in-depth and, and focused, obviously, because right now it, it's like we sort of have the Jersey Flag team where there's a lot of new faces where we're just not really sure what they're going to be or what they're going to be on the field. And obviously we've got some idea because, you know, you look at the stars like Bo Vetti Welsh and you mentioned the captain, uh, Samaya Talfa. Like there are people that you gravitate to just intrinsically because you know them from other things in the NRLW and the All-Stars. But as a team, we're going to have to wait and see how they, they turn out and, and learn how they play and, like I said, how they deal with adversity and all those things that come with the game that is rugby league. And that all starts on Sunday at 3.40 p.m. So make sure you catch it, whether it's in person or on TV, and then catch all of TCT's coverage because we're really looking forward to uh, this journey with the NRLW in 2022. And, mate, we're now pretty close to the end of this podcast, and we might have some listeners saying, oh, my goodness, I didn't think this one was ever going to end. Might as well go 24 hours at this point. Come on, boys. <laughs> However, I do want to mention something very quickly that um, – I was almost fanboying over this because um, uh, last week at the captain's run, there were some Eels old boys who were brought in to um, watch the captain's run and to meet the players. And um, I, I got to say g'day to some of them as they were, as they were doing their um, rapid tests uh, before going in, because that's, that's just the way of the world. If you, if, if you've got, any sort of contact that has to occur. Yeah, there are protocols that, doing rapid that they, they go through just to be able to watch training at a closer distance than, than what, say, someone like myself can. And um, so I wanted to mention that, um, you know, there the, the club is obviously looking to make connections with the history within the club. 
and, and players that pulled on the jersey. So there was the likes of um, Phil Mann, who was there. Now, uh, Phil gave me one of the um, – provided one of the best tries that I'd seen at any level of football one time in reserve grade at Crogger. This is, this is talking about, you know, why – what was so great about watching the different grades of football back in the past is you can carry memories from even lower grade footy um, going forward with, with players that, you know, did become first graders, but Phil, he caught the ball in the end goal from a St. George penalty kick and then ran the length of the field to score at the other end of the field. So it was a missed penalty kick. He's caught the ball in the end goal. He's gone. He's headed to the sideline, beaten several defenders and then, Run, gone the length of the field and scored. And, and one of the funniest things was the St. George fullback, Michael Sorodimi, trying to come across in cover. And as he's there, he's sort of jumping up and down with his hand above his head, like, how am I going to reach you, Phil? Because Phil was a renowned, very tall player. And, um, of course, Phil just swatted him away and went <laughs> for the try. So it was it was quite entertaining, the, the try. Um, Teddy Solkowitz, I spoke to him about uh, kicking a goal when he had concussion. And he reportedly afterwards had no idea what the score was. And he, and he thought that it didn't matter whether he kicked the goal or not. And, and it was the match-determining goal, uh, which he did kick. But because of concussion, he had no recollection of what the score was or, or anything. And that was from an NRL, uh, from a first-grade game back in, the, back in the 70s. Who else was there? Stan Jurd. So people familiar with the 80s would remember Stanley Plunkett Jurd um, and uh, a, a player who played a few games with the Eels in the late 60s and went on to become the sprint coach during the uh, glory years, Jersey Komarovsky. He was there as well. So just being able to see some of these players and that the club is getting those connections there with them, the, the players from the past and and um, and players uh, with the players of today, uh, it was great to see. And um, uh, I, I'd encourage the club to maybe be able to put out, um, you know, a bit a bit of details about you know any time this sort of thing happens because it, it was it was great to see. And I know it's painful for those players to have to go through all the protocols around COVID just to be able to be there and watch a bit of training. But I suppose that's the world that we live in. There you go. That's a, a nice sort of feels good way to wrap up this episode of the podcast. Like you said, good to see, or great to see the club reconnecting with uh, legends and, and you know the people that helped build you know this fantastic football club as it is through that uh, through the period before the glory days in the eighties, obviously. Um, but yeah, and uh, and just a, and a shout out to Michael Baston from the club because does a lot of he great does work. great work. Yep. He does a lot of great work with that with the community with past players. Michael's been responsible for um, our guests that we've had when we've done our live appearances at the Leagues Club. And I should also mention that we've got um, that we will have there. exciting news about our Leagues Club appearances in 2022. So um, if you're at matches um, at uh, Combank Stadium this year and you, want to stick around. and you want to stick around after matches, um, go and visit the Leagues Club because it's a great venue on match days. Um, we'll be involved in that this year and we're really looking forward to the format of, uh, of, of what that will be. So 
Um, if you've someone that's stuck around to the end of this podcast, there's a bit of news for you. We might have to mention it again in a future podcast near the start of the podcast to get that message across, mate. All right. Before we breach the two-hour mark, let's wrap it all up. As always, ladies and gents, and uh, people of all ages, I suppose. Thanks for stopping by and giving us a listen. It does mean a lot. We do love to talk about football. We do love to talk about the Eels. And this one was a mammoth episode. There was a lot to break down and preview between the news, the trials, and the NRLW. Uh, It's not always going to be this action-packed, but we do enjoy having all that content to break down. And if you do enjoy breaking down content, make sure to give us a visit on TCT, www.thecumberlandthrow.com. Catch all our pre-game, post-game, uh, opinion pieces. There's everything you need when it comes to Rugby League and the NRL and the Parramatta Eels on there. But until then, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Stay safe. Catch you guys later. Go the Eels.